there is a way to convert fear into positive energy. When I had discovered it for myself along the way, I used it quite deliberately to project confidence and sympathy. It had never failed me, and it gave me an unusual and exhilarating sense of power over circumstance, but it seemed to function only when I was alone. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. This is the Enlightened Dirtbags Podcast. My name is Jonah Condro. And I'm version two. In the first season of our podcast, we'll be discussing seven books about motorcycles. We're glad you're here. Let's turn some pages. Would you call this a hybrid episode? Because this is sort of like a two for one sort of deal. Yeah, I think so. I think this is episode six, isn't it? feel like it has four books and an intro. I, for, I already forgot about the intro, so I think you're right. Yeah, I bounce around whether I count that one or not. <laughs> Welcome back to the Enlightened Dirtbags. What did we just read? What are we talking about today? Well, we've got a bit of a double feature this time, both by Ted Simon, Jupiter's Travels and Dreaming of Jupiter. Some of you might have heard of him already. He's pretty famous in the motorcycle adventure world. He's been referenced in a couple of the other books that we read already. You know, he inspired quite a few people to do their trips. So it's uh, we're covering two of his books, which one trip he did around the world when he was 40, right? And yeah, then, I think he was around 40, that's yeah, right. Yeah, and then he did one 30 years later at 70 years old. So yeah. it's quite an undertaking. I think what separates Ted Simon from Elspeth Beard and Che Guevara and Robert Edison Fulton Jr. is that he's a little bit older when he when he goes on that first motorcycle ride around the world in Jupiter's travels like he's in his 40s whereas everyone else that we've read so far in this podcast season has been in like their mid-20s yeah for sure and I mean I think you see a lot of that in the way he reflects on on his uh situation in the book you know he has a bit more of a maturity to him it's not as much of a spirit quest you know you kind of go into it with a bit a little bit more mental preparation for what you're uh about to undertake there's a lot of content here in both books. These, This was not one, whatever book that you read, and, you know, it would it kind of makes sense to read Jupiter's Travels first because that was the first one he wrote. Right. And then read Dreaming of Jupiter. But they're almost 500 pages apiece. And so together, we're looking at, you know, almost a 1,000 pages of content by a guy. And here's the other interesting thing about Ted Simon that uh, we should bring up right off the get-go is he's a writer. Like he was working for a paper and that sort of sponsored him for his first trip, right? And so we're not necessarily reading motorcyclists who went on a journey and then decided to write about it, which is sort of the case, uh, notwithstanding Shea Gravera, because he was sort of like diarying and journaling as he went, right? Yeah. With Ted Simon, like he, he was very much like, yeah, he's a writer. He works as a writer and he's undergoing these motorcycle trips, motorcycle trip around the world with the intent of writing about it, right? And so... Right off the hop is we get a lot of uh, descriptive, uh, very well-written content, right? And so it's it's different, good, different, bad from like Elspeth Beard, who's not as strong of a writer, and we discuss that quite a bit. But Ted Simon, like, you you know that you're you're reading a writer right off the hop, I think. I would imagine that has some benefits in the sense of, you know, the everyone else, like we said, they kind of did this trip 
for themselves and then towards the end of it, usually from someone else suggesting that they should write a book, they're like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I would imagine that has the downside of you haven't really taken note of all of these events as thoroughly. And most of them do talk about like the painstaking process of going back and finding the places you went to, where you visited, especially like not all of them were in the days of the Internet. Yeah, that's so right. it would have been like really difficult going back through trying to figure out which monuments you visited, which places you were at, trying to remember people's names. And you see it a lot in uh, Ted Simon's writing. A lot of the conversations are in there, like word for word, right? Because every day he was going back and taking notes about everything and, and looking at it from a writer's perspective, knowing he's going to do this. And even in the second one, Dreaming of Jupiter, he, he, they're also filming a movie That's about right. it on the way, which adds kind of another level. I personally, I think I think I prefer the motorcyclist doing a motorcycle trip and then the book comes after rather than... Um, you know, a writer doing a motorcycle trip, kind of knowing they're doing it. Because I feel like, especially in the second book, it comes off like they're trying to tell you a story about this rather than just telling you what happened. It you feels know? a little forced, yeah. the second book, right? Yeah, a lot. But I think also I think a lot of that has to do with he's trying to justify it, right? Like it wasn't as eventful as the first trip and there's lots of times where he's like going back trying to find these same places that he doesn't always find or the monuments just aren't there anymore they got torn down you know the industrial age is kind of just plowed through these things right and he's not having the same experience but he's looking at it like i have to make a book out of this so how do i make this worth reading and i think that comes through in that second book because he's he even you know he mentions like his struggles like he's He's sort of questioning his purpose out here, right? And he's talking about, you know, trying to complete the circle. Mm -hmm. Like there's something here that he needs to complete. It sort of uh, comes across as very sort of disingenuous and almost inauthentic, right? Because you know that he's sort of adhering to his schedule. And there's lots of moments where it's like, oh, I need to be here by this day so I can meet the film crew, right? Yeah, the film crew really added a different dynamic that, I mean, in some ways I kind of liked uh, but for the most part, I was like, Ugh, it feels like we're listening to an actor's schedule. Yes. You know, and I'm like, that's the same thing that I didn't really like so much about um, Long Way Round, you know, with Ewan and Charlie. Because there's everywhere you go, you know, you have this assistance of this film crew and you kind of have these deadlines. You have to be these places for this, you know, filming. And it takes away the spirit of the like, I don't really fucking know what's happening, you know. And he in. Dreaming of Jupiter, admittedly, he does have some control over that because it's based on his previous trip. And he's like, hey, I want to go to these places because this is where I was before. But that has some pros and cons as well, because a lot of the times he's going to these places and the people that he had met 30 years earlier are dead now. Yeah. So it's like he gets there. The people he met aren't there anymore. And the monuments he went to see aren't even always there anymore. So it's like, OK, what now? And he doesn't really have that spirit of just go out and see what happens anymore because he's like, well, now we've got to get to the next location. Turns out there wasn't really anything here. Now we've got to go to the next one. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a moment in Dreaming of Jupiter and you don't really see it in his first book, but he's, you know, he's like 70 years old. I think he celebrates his 70th birthday 
shortly after he starts the trip, right? And yeah. I think that second trip was like two or three years. The first one was four years, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like he's an old man going around the world. And then he's like, uh, at one point he like breaks his leg. I can't remember if it's before or after he breaks his leg in that second book. And uh, he's just like tired. He's yeah. just like a, a tired old man trying to adhere to the schedule, right? And he's like trying to find that spirit, that energy, right? That sort of uh, oomph that you get when you don't know what's around the next corner and it's just not coming to him, right? And so really like the the energy in, in Dreaming of Jupiter really kind of flattens out, you know? There's not really like these peaks and valleys. There are, but they're not as pronounced in his first trip around the world. You know what's funny though is I had a really hard time getting into this book until he broke his leg. And once that happened, I was like, I feel like his tone kind of changed because he, in the beginning, you know, he even talks about, he has this grand send off when he's leaving and he's talking about how he just doesn't have like, he wants to appreciate it, but he doesn't, you know? Yeah. And Cause there's like a bunch of people that ride with him, right? Like there's yeah. like 50 or some odd riders. Yeah, it's like, like a parade. Yeah. And we're like, Oh, we're sending off Ted Simon. Right. Yeah. And he's on this, he's taking a bigger bike this time. You know, we went with the BMW instead of the triumph. And he's like, oh, I don't want to stall this or drop this or whatever. And he gets like a wobble early on when he's trying to ride away. And he's just feeling old and unceremonious. And he just kind of wants to have the same thing he had last time where he just rode off anonymously into the night. And the the whole tone in the beginning is just kind of like, he's like, I don't really know if I should do this. And there's all these expectations now. And it's the whole idea of it has changed. And then he starts going to places where the people he wanted to see again are dead and the monuments aren't there. And it just, it feels really bland to start with. You get a bit of character building with the film crews and whatnot. And the guy that gave him the bike really, you know, but it took quite a while until he like really hit some struggle. And then once he breaks, I think it was Africa, right? He breaks yeah, his leg. That's right. That was the moment where like he talks about like he could just go home, you know, and it would be like, yeah, dude, you're 70 years old and you broke your leg in the deserts of Africa. <laughs> like people would be like, we get it. But that kind of was the moment where he found that like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get through this. And then I started seeing a lot of the Ted Simon from the first book, you know, but before then, you know, he didn't really have, you know, he didn't hit a lot of walls in that sense. You know, he kind of got through everything a lot easier, getting the passports and everything he needed. The paperwork was all quite a bit easier. Still a struggle, of course, international travel like that always is, especially with a bike. But in general, it was a lot smoother than the first book. You know, he hadn't really ended up in jail yet, which is a big theme that we see in these. That's right. Yeah. You know, the first book, I think it was, was it India? It was he, in, in in Brazil. Oh, yeah. And he ends up in jail for uh, two weeks. Yeah. The bike's not even out of customs yet. Yeah, right? yeah, And they're and, like, oh, you're clearly up to no good. Yeah, he was taking uh, pictures of a bridge or something like That's that. Right, yeah. And the government is very untrusting of journalists and photographers. So they throw him in jail. Don't tell him why or for how long. And just like spends two weeks in this prison cell, sometimes with other people, sometimes not. And a prison cell that basically looks like a dungeon, like has the wall shackles and stuff and uh, goes through this insane mental battle of like, how long am I going to be in here? You think about it now, two weeks, well, it doesn't necessarily seem that long. But when every day is dragging out because you don't know, you don't even know why you're there and nobody will tell you, like it could get pretty intimidating. You have no way to communicate with the world and, and no way to tell your story. So none of that had really happened in the second book until he breaks the leg. Yeah. And actually, you know what? 
so he breaks his leg because he has the uh, hard case panniers on the side. And this is kind of a battle I went through with myself when I started riding my BMW adventure bike is you hear a lot of guys actually have this wreck. You know, you start to go down, your foot gets caught, gets drug in behind underneath the panniers and the panniers just break the leg or the ankle. And I personally run soft shell bags for this reason, because I do a lot of aggressive off-road riding on my bike and I don't want to do exactly this. So I was actually surprised when he went with the the hard panniers because as a 70-year-old man, A, there's more weight than the soft panniers and you have this possibility, you know, and he was already worried enough about the bike tipping over and not being able to pick it up. So I was pretty surprised he went that route, but he does switch after he has this incident because he kind of realizes. That's right. And then uh, I think too, on his BMW in his second trip around the world, it's got uh, an extended fuel range tank. It holds something like 43 liters of yeah, fuel. It's massive. Like yeah. that's, that's a lot of fuel. Like I think about my car, it holds 65 liters of fuel. Yeah. And here we got a motorcycle and I didn't even really uh, pick up on it. But when you look at him on the front cover of Dreaming to Jupiter, it's got this massive fuel tank, right? Yeah. And he talked and uh, even Ted Simon even talks about it, like how if he didn't need to fill it up all the way, he didn't because there's so much extra weight on that front tire. It became difficult to maneuver for sure in places like Africa or wherever, where there was like sort of incomplete roads, so to speak. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is something that BMW really liked to utilize on those older uh, GS bikes because with the boxer motors, the, the center of gravity is already really low. It's all really low slung weight with the heads coming out the sides. So you're able to run a bigger tank on there. But like he said, you know, you get in that loose sand and the weight over the front end, like if you catch a rut and it wants to go one way, you're not getting the traction on the back end to push through. And also another thing worth noting is he's running basically street tires on this thing. Yeah. Like that was one thing that blew my mind is through this whole trip. He has quite a bit of gear, you know, like satellite phone and all this stuff to try to keep up with the times you know oh, yeah because yeah, he's got his uh laptop because he's got a website right it's yeah 2000 and 2000 2001 which for anyone who has parents that they've tried to teach how to use facebook it is pretty <laughs> crazy to imagine this man you know 70 years old just learning all the technology on this trip but it's so funny that he's, he's prepared in all of these ways especially for the book and for the movie but never thought to like you know part way along the trip change the tires like even guys that ride from here in central canada up to alaska they'll usually change tires once you get up to the dempster highway you know like this guy's going around the world and he's just sticking with street tires that was pretty surprising to me and i think that only goes to show that we're reading about a rider who's on a motorcycle trip and we're and he's not a motorcyclist on a motorcycle trip right and we get that sense even in the the first book right because he just sort of like gets a brand new triumph and off he goes and he's basically figuring it out as he goes. Right. Cause I For think, sure. I can't remember. I think he had to, how he sort of like sort of smuggled the bike out of the, out of the dealership lot. Cause I don't even think he really had his proper license yet. And one thing I don't think that they said anything about, which I would have liked to know is how much riding he did in between from the first book to the second. And I get the sense that it wasn't a lot. I don't think maybe he had a motorcycle or two. Yeah, because I don't think they talk about them at all. And I know that the Triumph ended up in a museum. Yeah, like basically right at the end of the yeah. first book, right? So, 
Yes, and I don't think he mentions any other bikes in between. So I don't, I don't you think would, he was You rode. would think, you know, this is 30 years later, you did a motorcycle trip around the world. 30 years later, you're doing another one. You would imagine that he could now be considered a motorcycle rider. But if he just didn't really ride in between, and I didn't hear them cover any of that. So, well, by them, I should just say him, Ted Simon. He doesn't really talk about riding in between. So it's like you're just relearning riding again on this trip, which I guess does cover the spirit of the first adventure. But uh, I think a lot of that shines through on some of the equipment choice for the bike. There's one thing that I sort of like about the first book and the second book to a certain extent, but not, I guess, not equally, is that there's a problem of communication, right? The first book, it's in the early 70s, right? When he's like trying to communicate with the paper or when he's in jail in Brazil and he's like trying to get a hold of diplomats or uh, like the consulate, right? You have to wait for these messages. It sounds like a rudimentary sort of fax machine that he's using, right? Right. And, you know, like you would go there where this machine was. It's like, oh, no messages today. So you'd have to like come back or sort of check in and like the phones would be sort of spotty. So there's sort of like access to information or access to communication was sort of like this, it's like this weird resource that was sort of really patchy, right? Of course, he's a journalist, so he's really going to be sort of on top of like how you get your words to your editor kind of thing, right? Right. And you sort of see that a little bit in Dreaming of Jupiter because he's like always worried about the internet connection. And you're like, oh man, when when that part came up in Dreaming of Jupiter, right? And I get it. He's got sponsors. There's a little bit of money behind him. He's got a state of this film schedule, right? At one point, the UN was sort of involved. They were going to get a bunch of volunteers together. Well, that's how it started, right? That, is, yeah. Is the UN was going to do this like volunteer road trip or something, wasn't it? Yeah, like the UN volunteers were going to go on like this motorcycle trip with Ted Simon, right? Yeah. And so he had like sort of a lot of firepower behind him, right? But there was still this sort of problem that, you know, it wasn't as easy as just pulling out your sat phone because I think at one point he had two cell phones and he threw one away because... He's like, it didn't work, and then he got mad or something, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, though, if if this is one of those things that... I guess you are a writer yourself, but I know for me, I'm not a writer by any means, and so I'm by far more interested in the side of riding the motorcycle around the world, where there probably is a lot of people that would appreciate this, like, you know, the pressure of trying to, you know, make a a film and make a book at the same time on this trip and you know the deadlines you're going to have and how that ties into this adventure i'm sure there's a lot of people that can appreciate that but i know for me it was just kind of a dynamic of it that i that kind of lost me you know i'm like uh, like i have multiple times in my notes that like i think it would have been better if he wasn't filming but also there's a couple instances where they're filming and they're like well we can't use that footage because they kind of get frustrated with locals or officials, you know, trying to get paperwork. And they're like, well, it just makes you look like an arrogant white guy. Yeah. Because you're getting frustrated with these officials. So like, oh, we can't use that anymore. Whereas it's something in all of these books, you know, like you see it every time trying to get paperwork to cross borders is always a hugely frustrating situation. And they're always getting mad at them. So I, w- I, would, I would like to see the film and see how it's portrayed, but I feel like they would probably miss out on on a lot of the aspects of traveling around the world, you know? Like, they want it to be a little bit showy, but they don't want to show the frustrations of it, and which is a huge part of it. You know, every single one of these books we've read, the people have been delayed weeks because they can't get paperwork. 
you know, look at uh, Elspeth Beard when they're trying to get that Punjab permit. Oh, yeah. And then they finally realize that the officials at the border have no idea what it looks like. Yeah. And they just give them a random piece of paperwork and they're like, ah, Punjab permit. And they're looking at it upside down or something, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's not even the actual Punjab permit, but they're just like, oh, yeah, because they're like, oh, they've never even seen one before. They just know (laughs) to ask for it. You know, it's so it is so frustrating. And that's something that I think you have to include in all of these, like show the main character getting angry with these officials and stuff like that. But, you know, at the same time, especially, you know, he was kind of going through when um, the war in Iraq, like right after the 9-11 attacks happened. Right. So the world is changing while he's doing this trip. And you have to be careful how it looks to the public. And I think he's aware of that. Yeah, they do kind of talk about it a bit and the complications that it brings and the way people treat him during that trip because of this changing conflict, you know? Ted Simon brings it up because he has all the gear to go camping and he's sort of hating himself for not camping out more, right? He always ends up in a hotel and he's drinking a fucking glass of wine and having a steak, right? He just, you know, I get a man, you're 70, I get it. You got a little bit of financing behind you. If you don't have to camp, like, I feel you, right? Yeah. But it sort of becomes like he's sitting in the hotel room and he's watching, he even mentions specifically CNN and the, like sort of the progress of leading up to the point where there's, you know, they're going and America's going into Iraq and he talks about, I, I believe it's Tony Blair, right? He's like, oh, I thought my prime minister, you know, uh, had different values, right? So he's like, yeah. I'm really, you know. And so you, you do sort of get that sense that Ted Simon's sort of like seeing the global psychology sort of change after 9-11, right? Right. But I, I don't think that that's sort of like a main point in this book. Like, that's not that's not really a turning point. Because uh, I think this is sort of like a big sort of hypothetical that I'm throwing out. Like, had he went on this trip and September 11th not happened, I still get the sense that we'd still get a book that would be very similar. Because I don't right. think September 11th is like a big, it, don't get me wrong, big moment, right? Horrific, right? But I don't think that that punctuated... Uh, Ted Simon's second journey around the world as much as it might have in some other cases. Yeah, I think they just, they really needed to include it in there because of the fact that uh, it kind of changed his ability to travel in a way with the British siding with the states on this situation because before the British passport kind of unlocked some doors for you. That's right. That being like a Canadian or American wouldn't. You know, a lot of these places you're going through used to be British colonies at some point or still are, you know. You kind of get free travel in a way, but during all of this, now it was kind of like, well, you might as well be American, you know? So they, it is important that they cover it so that they can talk about how that just made things more difficult, but it didn't cause him to stop his trip or change his plans. It just, you know, global politics can really affect crossing borders and stuff, right? And people have their each have their individual opinion, and in places like this around the world, it's really easy for the official to just not really like you that much and make your day suck or your entire week. You know, like they talk a lot about, I believe it was in Africa where we'll just make white people wait because they know that in whatever other country they would have to wait. And so they're like, you're just going to have to wait longer. It's just part of the system. It's like, okay, well, (laughs) there's nothing you can do. You just have to accept it. Right. And then he runs into more problems with, you know, the States and the UK kind of siding and just made it more difficult for him. But I think you're right. Other than, other than that, I don't, I don't think it would have changed much about the trip, but it's hard not to cover, you know, like he sees it on the news while he's overseas. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's most of these books, 
there's some sort of civil war going on somewhere whenever he goes, whenever they go through. So that wasn't really happening as much this time. You know, yeah. it was kind of pretty peaceful around the world when the he was going seemed through. a little calmer. Yeah. Yes. You almost need to add in some sort of global conflict, right. To cover that theme. And I don't, I don't know what his intentions are. I don't know if he kind of thought of it that way, if he was like considered not adding it or if he's like, oh, this will be good for the book. But I think without it, it, I don't know, you needed the extra excitement in some way, you know, because yeah. a lot of the times it's, you know, the, you're not really hitting, hitting the key points from the previous book can't really blame him. He's 70 years old now, but it's like, you're not getting as much excitement as you did in the first one. Cause the first book was great. I yes. love the first book, but this one I had the dreaming of Jupiter. I had some trouble with just cause the excitement's not there, but it's like, he's 70 years old. Like yeah. it's, it is an amazing thing to do on its own. But to go through a whole book about it, I was like, mm, could have been shorter. I had to watch a BAMP Film Festival special feature about it or something. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, and there's a moment in, in Dreaming of Jupiter where he's sort of talking about that, right? Because there's no unknown, right? Because he's, he's like talking about the footsteps. Mm-hmm. There's nobody, you know, the footsteps that he's following are his. And what made his first trip so important and so kind of... Uh, special in a way is like he really sort of thought that he was the first guy going around the world right right right. and i and i don't really know if he knew about robert fulton edison jr or robert edison fulton jr at that in the first book because he does reference one man caravan in the second book right? right so i think he's very i think he thinks he's the first guy doing a trip around the world right I think we even talked about this in uh, a short history of the motorcycle, where it's like the first guy was it actually was done in like 1912 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Carl Stearns Clancy. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I don't know why. I'm never gonna forget that. Name. It's just <laughs> stuck in my head. The first time I read it, I was like, "What an awesome name for the first guy to ride around the world," you know. But again, who knows how well documented that was? But it it is. It's 1912. So if he really did do it. He's he's getting the crown. Yeah, you know? for sure. And so I think there's sort of like an energy that comes with the ego knowing that you're, or at least believing that you're the first person to do this thing, right? Right. It gives you that idea of like, if someone else has done it, you know it can be done. That's right. So it's like, okay, it can be accomplished. I just have to do it. If nobody else has done it, it's like, I might do something that can't be done or is previously thought that it can't be done. Yeah. And there's a moment in Jupiter's travels where he's, and it's it's almost like a throwaway moment, but it's not. He's like, this might be the end of me. And he's sort of mm-hmm. resolved, not really resigned, but he's sort of like comes to terms that this trip might kill him. For sure. Right? And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot that you can sort of like churn up from that sort of thought or whatever energy that comes with having that sort of a thought like this might kill me but i'm doing it anyways because i think that gives you it's like a shot of nitrous almost right Mm -hmm. and because you're right if if you're just following in some of someone else's footsteps you're like oh yeah i just it's just a matter of me doing it right like i know that this person did this yeah right and i'm trying to do what that person did and it's just a matter of me sort of getting my own head around it and like i know it can be done that guy did it so why can't i right well, it's like going to space, you know, there's a ton of coverage and a ton of people watching the first time. And after that, it's like, well, it's been done. So people don't care as much. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to like, I mean, he's going to have less excitement about it. And then how do you avoid keeping that feeling out of the book? You know, the big thing you need to focus on is that he's 70 and rode around the world, which yeah. is something that nobody else is going to do at 70. 
you know, most people are like, I'm old now. I'm staying home. That's they don't right. even want to go for a walk. So it is it is an extremely impressive feat. It's just kind of hard to follow step by step. I think another another problem for me was that I didn't read um, Jupiter's Travels as recently. I read it quite a while ago. So, you know, the people and the places that he's looking for and the people that he does find don't kind of have that emotional connection so much anymore. You know, whereas like if I had just read Jupiter's Travels and then Dreaming of Jupiter immediately after, I would still kind of have that connection to the previous adventure. Whereas now I wasn't really as excited for him to find what he was looking for, you know, because I wasn't as attached to it. I thought it was interesting that there's one point where, and this goes back to what you were saying, where like the mystery isn't there because it's planned. It was funny that one of the border crossings he's trying to go to, he remembers he went down a road and he ended up at these ruins and then he had to cross the border from there. But he took a wrong turn from where he had originally planned to go and that's how he ended up at these ruins. But since it was a part of the first trip, now he's like, I want to go back to those ruins because that's the way I went. But he can't figure out how to get there. Now with like GPS and stuff, you know, he... He can't find out where he took the wrong turn and how he ended up in this place. And he's not able to find it. Even now with a plan to go there, he can't do it, even though the first time was just an accident. So it's like, you can't really recreate that. Just, you know, making it up as you go kind of adventure. One of the things that Dreaming of Jupiter sort of left me with once I finished reading the book is like, I don't understand why as an old man, you'd want to retrace your steps so closely i get mm-hmm. i get following the route right right like i i get that and you can sort of understand or glean sort of like these these big changes that may have occurred like oh this road's better and actually now this city's you know really nice but like i think one of the first people he tries to track down is there was somebody in italy uh, or sicily that was going to build a school and he wanted to go find out if that happened right and then he gets there and it's like the guy died the wife is sort of like really puts up a concrete wall, you know, like, cause doesn't really want to talk to him about it. Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of like a son that doesn't really get mentioned. Right. And it's sort of really weird. Yeah. And then fast forward, I think he's in Egypt. He tries to find like these guys that he took him on a camel to the, uh, a pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. And then the one guy took a photo and it ended up being like this really cool moment. And so he ends up finding the same guy, one of the same, one of the guys that died or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then he finds like, I'm like, I don't, I don't know why you'd want to find, the, the same guy. And in some moments, I think it's later, he's a little bit farther south in Africa and he comes into a town and there's like people that remember him that came through the first time, right? And they kind of get excited about it. But like, I'm like, for me, I'm like, I don't understand why you want to follow it so closely. Right. To the point where you're trying to meet people over again. Well, and he even reflects on that a little himself when he finds that same guy that took him on the camel to the pyramid and they do the same thing again with that guy and they take the same picture. That's right. And he kind of reflects on it as like, it almost feels like just this strange mockery of the first one. Yeah. Cause it's like, you can't, I don't know. Like it's cool to see like 30 years ago versus now, you know, we found this, found each other. I get, I get the allure of it, but it's, you're never going to recapture that first moment. That's right. You know, it's funny though, if he would have done this trip like five years earlier, it probably would it would have been way more exciting because most of the people he's looking for died within like the last two years. Yeah. yeah you know, right, like, yeah. you know, so it's, I mean, obviously you can't go back in time, but it's just like few and far between that he finds the people that he was actually looking for. And they're usually not the key characters. 
It was pretty interesting that the guy that took him on the camel to the pyramids remembered him, though. Yeah. From 30 years later. Like, that's pretty neat. There's pros and cons to both, but I think you needed to add a little bit of that unknown to this trip. I was a little surprised that he had kept up communication with some of these people as well as he did, because he's always talking about how he had a friend of a friend, right? He's very well networked, right? Like he's very, it seems to me in his second time around the world, like he's got, he's got people he can contact, right? And so it's good if you're, let's say in South Africa and you need a place to stay for a couple of days while mm. you figure out how to get your motorcycle over to South America, right? But there's, it takes away that sort of like, okay, you're in a town, what the fuck do I do, right? Yeah. So he's already sort of like has these problems solved before he even knows that they're problems. Where he's like, oh, I have somebody I can call. Oh, I like, you know, like even when he blows a tire, he just calls the guy who he borrowed the motorcycle from. Oh, I'll send you a tire, right? Yeah. Or, oh, you need a starter, right? And so it's like he's got so many solutions, right, that, you know, the, he's sort of extinguishing these problems that right. make his first book so interesting. Well, and we talk about that. That's kind of been such a common theme here, right, is we just talked about it so much with one of the last couple episodes here. These problems that, it, you know, if, if somebody asked you what you would do in this scenario, you wouldn't have an answer until you're in it and you find a way to overcome it because you have to. You know, and that's been such a huge theme in all of these books. And I think that's why I really, I really sunk into this book a lot more after he breaks his leg in Africa, because it just derails the whole plan. Yeah. And like now, some of that crazy shit does come up, you know, like it, another one of those scenarios where it like trouble hits and somehow the solution is nearby, you know, like it happens in all of these books. Oh, your wiring's shot. Oh, the only, you know, automotive electrical shop within... 500 miles is like down the road. Yeah. You know, like it's just crazy coincidences <laughs> like that. So in this scenario, he's in the middle of nowhere. He crashes, breaks his leg. And there's like these tribal kids that come over that are like super weary. And he's trying to like say hospital or help or doctor or whatever, trying to figure out whatever key word is going to get these kids to help him. Cause they were like, what are you doing laying over there with that machine, man? <laughs> and finally, they get a hold of someone and they send some help from one of the local towns. And it turns out there's this hospital like eight miles back and he gets to this hospital that you absolutely wasn't planning on seeing at all down this crazy rough road and goes to this hospital meets this Italian doctor who has all of these wild stories. Like when the local tribes people decided that a girl that he was treating needed to die because of some oh, dispute yeah. between the local tribes and they're like, no, 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 she's not one of our people. She can't be here. She needs to die. So they like besiege this hospital and they like board it all up and they lock the doors and they're trying to keep them all out so they can save this person. And one of the local tribesmen ends up convincing one of the staff there that they're not actually there to kill them. They're like going to try to help in some way and gets in and then shoots the girl like five times, yeah. somehow misses all the vital organs like hits her just in the arms and legs. So clearly a terrible shot and they end up saving her anyways. But it's just this, again, it's like his plan gets derailed and all of a sudden he starts having these wild experiences. You know, when they fly him out of the, the hospital on this plane and there's kind of a miscommunication about if it's going to cost him anything or not. And it's like, he's, you know, the idea is he's just getting on a plane that's already going out anyways for somebody else. And he has like an altercation with that down the road. 
and goes through this crazy experience to try to go back 400 miles away to get his bike now once his leg is healed. There's so many cool scenarios within that whole time span that just never would have happened if he had stuck to the plan because you're meeting new people and you're having to problem solve along the way. Like one of the times like, oh, well, we can take this guy's four by four to go back and go get your bike and you can like, since your foot's not healed, you can drive the truck back and I'll ride your bike back. And they like get just out of town and the transfer case just grenades. And it's like, okay, on to the next plan. What do we do now? You know, it's, it's that beautiful scenario of like, I have no idea how I'm going to deal with this. It seems like an insurmountable problem, but we're going to overcome it. And in the end he does, but there's like that whole section was just so much more enjoyable than anything else because you're just, making it up as you go you know you get that true adventure spirit and it seemed like he enjoyed it the most you know there was like no you know bummed out kind of mopey feeling to that whole thing despite the fact that he just broke his leg and he has this altercation about what the flight's going to cost him and stuff it kind of gets insulted as like you people or whatever (laughs) and and like is just struggling to figure out how to get his bike back doesn't know if it's going to end the trip it's just that the spirit of like, oh, what do we do now? I've got to meet new people and make these connections. And weeks are going by until enough pieces come together. You know, you met this person and they know, they know this person with a four by four or a convoy of trucks. And then it just comes together. Right. It's so cool. And it, it's just by far my favorite part of the book. That's really where it all changed for me. I remember coming up to that point and dreaming of Jupiter. And I was like, there's still a lot of book left. Right. Right. And so... I think for me, and I, I definitely share your sentiments. Like it was a bit of a, a bit of a challenge to read his second book, just because I think the expectations were so high with Jupiter's Travels, right? And I think that gave me a lot of momentum. I was like, okay, I need to. This, this is like the story finally started, right? Yeah. And it kind of happened sort of late in like the er, late in the early part of the book, so to speak. But I think that's sort of when you're like, oh, okay, like this is still, he's just not connected to Wi-Fi the entire time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's still some real shit that can go down, right? Yeah, he just knocked the train off the tracks and make him, and like he just started doing what he did in the first trip. He kind of off time with the film crew and stuff. So you don't have those deadlines anymore. And, you know, like, and I'm glad he didn't go too far into the healing period of his leg, you know? Like they kind of cover that a little bit in the sense of like, Oh, you, he broke his leg and they're trying to figure out what it is. But of course, they don't have a bulb for the x-ray machine because they're in oh yeah a hospital in the middle of nowhere in Africa uh, run by two Italians somehow. Like yeah. just a wild story there. But he didn't get too much into like the... You could really be very glum about all of that. Oh, yeah. Know? Well, like and the, the weird thing was he's like, he didn't have any pain. He's like... Yeah. He's like, I am, in, am I in shock? Because he's like, I know when people are in shock, they don't feel any pain. And then like... Well, I'm not in shock and I'm laying here and he's like, yeah, so I don't feel any pain. It's like, oh, it just so happened that it broke in such a way that the pieces aren't rubbing together and how incredibly fortunate. And you're like, what? Yeah. And he talks about how he like tries to stand on it and it just flops over and you're like, oh, it's like, it's like reading about a UFC match or something. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, what? But I, I wonder how that would have changed if he did feel the pain of that, like if that would have scared him more. You know, because that would be awful. You know, breaking bones, I've done it. It sucks. And uh, I wonder if that would have deterred him from the adventure a little bit more. But instead, you're like, you're just dealing with the downtime of a break, but you still, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. You're not going through that excruciating pain of healing it and, 
you sometimes getting it reset and whatever. So, so having read Jupiter's Travels and having read Dreaming of Jupiter, I don't get the sense that Ted Simon is a tough guy. Like he's not. I don't get the sense that he's going to fight someone in a bar. He's not going to pull a knife, right? He's. I don't get this. I don't get the sense that he's super athletic, right? I think he's healthy, and I think what his like super strong point is is he's got this sort of like iron constitution when it comes to his gut, and I think that sort of translates into the way that he's able to sort of like overcome things like broken legs. Yeah. Because there's a moment in Jupiter's Travels where he's like, "Yeah, I only had diarrhea once in four years that I was on the road," and it's sort of like almost like a throwaway moment. But when you think about it, it's like. Well, fuck, man. I've had diarrhea like four times in like the last year, at least, right? <laughs> what do you mean? Like you're going, like he's eaten like all kinds of like food that he's never even really sampled before, right? Yeah. And so, and he even talks about sort of his iron gut, right? So I think like, I think he has a bit of an attitude that sort of spawns and sort of like comes out of the fact that, you know, he's got this sort of strong gut, right? And I think he's not really aware of how tough of a person that he really is because it doesn't really come across in his ego. I think his ego is sort of pointing towards other things and it's not that physical proudness, right? For sure. Because he, he even talks about, it, like, yeah, I struggled to ride the bike. Well, yeah. you are 70 years old. But even the Triumph, like, he's, he, you don't really get the sense that he's like this confident sort of athletic rider, you yeah, know? Yeah, he doesn't seem like a tough guy at all. One thing that I have noticed, though, um, that I really appreciate about him and I think it's to do with him being a global travel writer, you know, not just like a motorcycle adventurist that's writing a book later. Because all of these other writers, you you kind of get what's happening directly to them and in their immediate, you know, circle. But one thing I really appreciate with Ted Simon is he talks a lot about when he's somewhere, you know, in between days of riding or, you know, he's camping or he's in a hotel, he points out just the daily things happening around him. He seems to have a keen eye for just the daily activities and the daily struggles of the people in the area that he's in. Like he seems to be a bit of a, like a people watcher, you know, and you kind of get a bigger picture of what's happening in that town because he reaches out and kind of touches on all of the other things, things that are going on with people that don't necessarily have anything to do with his adventure, but he gives you an idea of the surroundings that a lot of the other people don't do. And I think that's something to do with the fact that he is a writer that travels the world. Yeah. You know, so you kind of pick up on those things. Whereas if you're just traveling and you're not planning on writing about it, you don't tend to notice those because you don't, you don't need to, you're not thinking about how do I paint a picture for the audience? That's right. You know, you're just like, Oh, these are the things that happened to me. Whereas Ted Simon is really good at like, giving you a mental image of what's happening and what are the people doing around him that he hasn't even talked to, you know? And I think it's sort of, uh, is true with both of these books is it's very much almost like, like a travel blog in between the things that happened to Ted Simon. Like, cause mm -hmm. I think you could isolate certain parts and where he's almost completely removed from what's being described. And you're just like, oh, okay, like this is what it was like after this flood in this part of Brazil. And he just sees people like sleeping in the street because that's just where it's the driest, right? Yeah. And so it's all really well connected through this place to this place to this place. Like he, there's never a moment where he's like, oh, I can't remember the name of that town. 
Yeah. Because he always knows the name of that town, right? And so it's like this very long sort of connected travel sort of blog. One of the things that sort of like makes the book sort of challenging to read is like it almost seems boring because like unless you're super interested and invested in a certain portion or a certain town or a certain situation or a certain culture, right? Like you're just like, oh, he's just... He's using kind of using the same framework over and over again to describe it. So you really got to like uh, keep yourself invested in in what you're reading to to get the most out of this read, or else you're just gonna you're just gonna your eyes are gonna glaze you over, yeah. and you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna put the book down for the night, right? One line in the book that I thought kind of really he really started to touch on this example of you know the people around him and painting the picture and his his interactions with people he says i choose my strangers and my strangers choose me i really liked that line and it's of course it's again it's after it's after the the leg break in africa and when things kind of go off the tracks and it's just he really starts having to interact with people in an unplanned way and he talks about like who you are yourself tends to attract these certain types of strangers and you kind of find each other on the way, you know, there's always these like chance encounters where you're like, Oh, imagine that. Like, it's crazy that you and this person who both are kind of doing the same thing or have similar needs, or one of you has something that the other one needs and you're able to exchange, like what's the chance that you would just come across each other. But he starts talking about the person he is and how he presents himself tends to attract these certain types of strangers. And you just, they just attract to each other as the path goes on, you know, whereas if he was a different type of person, you know, maybe if he was the tough macho guy, he might meet different strangers and it could be a totally different adventure, even if he followed the same path. But I think he kind of comes off as this like gentle, friendly kind of guy, you know, and, and with his age too, especially in this one, because there's so many people that ask him how old he is. And he's like, Oh, 70. And they're like, Oh, what? Yeah. Like, this is, this is so cool. You know, like they're like, I'm 55. And like, he looks younger than them. Obviously they live a harder life. Right. But his age in itself kind of brings certain strangers around because they're like, this is so cool that you're doing this trip at your age. And I just thought it was such a neat, a neat point to think about. Like, Two people can take the exact same path, but the people you interact with is going to be entirely based on how you present yourself to the world. I think it's in Jupiter's Travels where he's like, the journey is sort of a state of mind, right? And it's not so much that the journey is like the A to B to C to D and all the you know places you stop in between. It's very much, like you said, with the meeting the strangers and having that attitude towards meeting new people mm-hmm. and whatever sort of type of person that stranger may be it like he he sort of captures that early on in jupiter's travels it's about it's a state of mind that he's in right and that sort of is sort of the journey right the journey isn't so much you know that he did uh, however tens of thousands of miles i can't remember how much how uh how many he put on in each in each go around but Mm -hmm. it's very mental right it's very psychological and very mental like you don't get a lot of that in the the first half of the book i would say with it being planned out and you know he doesn't really have the opportunity to put himself out there but the second half really 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 changed he meets some interesting characters he hears some crazy stories like the one of them he, he somebody tells him about um a local 
shot and killed a white man. And the guy's excuse for it was, I've never seen a white man die and I wanted to see how they go about it. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. But that's, that's something like you're not going to hear that story in, you know, Canada or United States or UK or whatever. That's something that really taps into just how kind of primitive the mentality can be in some of these places, you know, and how much of a division there can still be. And, uh, and you don't, you don't hear those things unless you really do communicate with the people around you. And like you said, there's a, a big portion of the first part of the book where he's like staying in hotels and stuff and eating kind of lavish dinners and whatever. And that kind of separates you from the people. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of scenes where he's talking about what's going on around him, but he's up on some restaurant balcony kind of overlooking the scene. And it does give him a good opportunity to paint the picture of how the architecture has changed maybe, or the, the roads and whatever, but he, it separates him from the people. And it's not until later where he's kind of forced to get a little bit more rugged and interact with the people like you're camping. All of these books we've read have had interesting scenarios where it's like getting dark and you need to find a place to stay and you just come across somebody that will let you stay with them. And it's almost always like this really interesting interaction and they have some crazy story and you just don't get enough of that in the first half of the book. There's a couple moments that I want to ask you about and... It happens in Jupiter's Travels. I think he's in India. So he's always he's already like more than half done his first trip around the world and his mom dies. Right. And so right. it's like, do I fly home? Right. And that was sort of like an interesting moment for me because he's like, Well, first of all, do I even go to my mother's funeral? Right. And I he's not he does I don't even think he knows who his dad is or his dad took off when he was young or something yeah, like that. I think so, that's the case. So he was sort of like, Well, do I go? He's still he understands that there's this commitment to the trip, right? And it's sort of like this weird circuit breaker where you got to get on a plane and you're just going straight home and you're leaving the bike there, right? And I think because he's close enough with his mom, he gets the the sort of like the the momentum and the impetus of like a funeral. I don't think it takes him out of the journey, right? But then he ends up obviously flying back and continuing on. But it happens in dreaming of Jupiter and he's I think he's in Brazil and he flies to the States he's like oh I just had to take care of some like domestic like responsibilities and you're like wait what's going on what did you have to go take care of right why was that decision to go to get on a plane and leave your motorcycle like there there wasn't the same amount of like sort of thought and weight given to that decision right yeah in the first one he really does like kind of express his emotion for it like is this going to change the the bearing of the trip and you know it's like you said circuit breaker is the best term for it yeah you know it's like if you're watching a suspense movie you know and you're really attached to it and you're like oh what's going to happen next and then you're like i gotta go to bed you turn it off and start it again the next day it's still interesting but you've kind of lost the build-up kind of have to start again and he the first book he really talks about you know he's worried about losing that yeah that momentum and whatever uh, losing that from carrying on to the second half. But the second book, he it, like you said, it's just kind of like, oh, I had to go do this. And it's like, well, why put it in there then? Because you don't explain it enough to really make us understand it. It's you just mentioning it kind of is a circuit breaker for us too. Yeah. You know, because it doesn't feel like circumnavigating the globe anymore. Once you go back and then you do something else and then you come back and resume it, it kind of feels like it should always just be a hard charging continuous thing. You, I've it. It is one of those things that really makes you 
distance yourself, I guess, from the feeling of the adventure. We already sort of talked about it, how he sort of has like this dedication to like completing the circle. I think that's sort of the language that he uses in Dreaming of Jupiter. Like he wants yeah. to finish the trip. As I read Dreaming of Jup- Jupiter, right? I don't want to say I forgot, but I, I sort of shelved the knowledge that I had that he had the res- had resources, right? Mm. And I think to a certain extent, he had resources in the first trip, right? Because he had the newspaper. He was sort of writing. He was able to make money. You know what I mean? But, like, just sort of thinking about, like, Che Guevara, not so much uh, Fulton Jr. because he had rich parents, right? Right. But Elspeth Beard, like, if it meant flying home, like, that would have ended the trip for Elspeth Beard, right? Yeah, for sure. Because she, like, like, I have this much money, and I need to make this much money so I can go and do this thing, right? And so it's, it's, it's sort of really sort of sucks, you know, the enthusiasm that I might have for this when I know that you can just get on a plane and go home to take care of some chore. It does kind of express some sense of privilege, I guess. Yeah. Again, I've I've said it a couple times now, but you really have to hang on to the fact that he's 70 to stay impressed with this adventure. Yeah, you're right. Because if this this book was actually the first one, I I don't think I would have finished it. You know, if like the first one, there was so much excitement, but if this book was him doing it at, 40 it would have been like well okay you left in the middle of the trip and you don't really talk about it and you don't really seem concerned with it and you're not you know you're staying in hotels and whatever the only reason you can really still justify that and stay connected to it is because it is so impressive to do this at 70 yeah like so i don't like most people's grandparents that are that within that kind of era like they're not even camping locally anymore, you know, <laughs> like some of them are already in an old folks home. So it is really impressive. And you, ha- I've found myself having to, you know, kind of stop and go, right. He's 70. That's why this is impressive. Now, what do you make about, so in Dreaming of Jupiter, he has a woman fly in with him and then he's like doing, he's got his girlfriend on the back of the bike, right? That's exactly what I wanted to touch on next. Actually, I was just looking at my notes being like, I got to make sure we get into that. There was a really interesting scene in there where he talks about putting her on the back of the bike and he's super nervous. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, man, I can relate to this. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. like I can't say since I've been riding motorcycles, I've dated many people that were already motorcycle riders, you know, and motorcycles for me have become such a huge passion. Like I'm not like, oh, I take it to the pub or whatever, do a lap around town from time to time. I rode in here today from the cabin in like seven degrees, you know, like it wasn't warm. Yeah. Like two hours. I'm like the the roads are clear. I can ride my motorcycle. I'm riding my motorcycle. I don't, I had to boost it. Like it was dead when I pulled it out of the shed, you know, like motorcycles are such a huge passion for me. So it's always important to try to get whoever I'm dating into that same passion because, you know, sharing something like that is so huge for a relationship, right? There's always that moment the first time you take them on the bike and you're like trying to ride careful, don't hit any potholes, watch out for loose gravel, don't get too close to traffic. You're always watching for like any scenario where someone might try to come into your lane and you try to downplay it as much as you can. Don't overreact. You don't want to scare them. And the whole time you're like, I have no idea what this experience is like for them because you're not talking to each other. You both got helmets on. They're on the back of the bike, which is always less comfortable. There's no bike that's more comfortable to be a passenger than, a, than the actual rider. <laughs> And, and he talks about it a lot, like how nervous he is when on that first ride where he's like, I really, really hope she likes this. And then they get off the bike 
And he's like looking at her. He even goes into like before she says anything, they get off the bike and he's looking at her and she's got her helmet on. And he's like, I still can't see. And then she takes her helmet off and he sees the smile. And he's like, I'm so happy about this. (laughs) And she just says, I like it. And then he at the bottom, I think it was like the end of the chapter. He goes, she really likes it. And it's like I connected with that moment so much because I've been on both sides of that. I've taken a, a date for a ride and then the end they're like, yeah, that's way too scary for me. Or like, I don't want to, I don't like being in the traffic and I don't know what to do. And you're like, oh, shit, you know, for him, especially like he really loves this person, right? Already. So he really, really wants her to come on this trip with him and enjoy the passion of it. And it's just this extreme moment for him. And I was, as I read it, I was like, man, I know exactly, exactly the feeling you're talking about. I'm glad that. That happened, and I'm glad that I got to read about that. Because maybe not to the same level that you're sharing, but I've definitely had experiences in the past where it's like, okay, I'm taking this girl with me. She's going to be on the back of the bike. Let's see where this goes, right? And so I definitely sort of understand that. And I think this is like a good part in the book where you remember that he's 70 years old. Right. And he's got this... She's definitely not even... Uh, she's, you know, what? What would you say she would... I can't. I can't think of her name right now. She would be I in her. I want to say Malu or something like that's that. That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a unique name. That's right. And he discusses her accent a little bit and whatnot too, so especially I, when she's giving him shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I get the sense that she's probably fifteen years younger than him, right? Right. Like I don't get the sense that she's in her sixties. I think she might be like in her late fifties. Like, and it's never really discussed. This is just sort of the sense that I get, right? And I, so, so I think at this moment where I'm sort of like get bonked over the head again, like, oh, you're you're reading about, they're not exactly, you know, old-ass people, but they're older people on a bike, right? Yep. And it, all of a sudden, like, I started having anxiety for him. I'm like, man, did you forget that you broke your fucking leg? You know? <laughs> you can't pick up this bike by yourself. Yeah. You know, right? like, you get a passenger on the back, which on these big, tall adventure bikes, absolutely 100% changes the dynamic. Yeah. Especially if you're off the tarmac. Like if you're on rough terrain at all, the center of the gravity, center of gravity is so much higher now. And I was like, I felt the same thing. I'm like, man, good luck. You better hope that she's a backpack because if she, (laughs) you know, if she starts wiggling or reaches down to adjust something with her boot or whatever, you're going over. Yeah. And I've, I've had passengers that have been like that where you're riding along and I had to pull over and I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, I was just, you know, doing this. I'm like, well. Like I can, every time you shift a little bit, I feel that. Right. And I'm like, I need to know if like, you're going to be cool here because if we catch something wrong, that's both of us are heading into the ditch. Yeah. Especially like mid lean or something. (laughs) And it's like passengers that have never ridden a motorcycle are always complicated. It's nice when they ask you like, what do I do? And you go, just be a backpack. Yes. If I start to lean, you know, you don't really need to lean with me, but just kind of follow me a bit and I will learn your movements. But number one, be consistent. Don't kind of lean sometimes, really lean sometimes, other times not lean at all. Because I I have to calculate before the turn. I can't go into the turn at a certain lean and then realize, oh shit, you're leaning. Well, I guess, that, you know, <laughs> a little bit less, a little bit less umph on this one, you know, like, yeah, I can't be surprised by what you're doing and, and don't just like oh, squirrel, you know, and spin around or whatever, uh, you know, it's so for him to do this at this age, especially is, is really impressive. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say if I think it was a benefit to the book because there's scenarios where I really liked how in depth he went about like love at his age Yes, and how it means something different. 
And that's kind of been a big theme for him. You know, he fell in love twice on the first trip yeah. in the first book. And they were like really meaningful scenarios, really meaningful connections. And I, I always appreciated his insight on that. And so in this one, he, he really gets an opportunity to talk about what it's like to love someone at that age, you know, despite their differences, like she doesn't like sleeping in the same bed and she's had miserable past relationships. So she's like, I have no desire in falling in love with somebody, but he's like madly in love with this woman and like really wanting that to be reciprocated. So him sharing his like emotional insight there, I thought was a really positive thing. But at the same time, when you have a passenger, you can never really immerse yourself in the trip as much. And I'm glad that you say that because I really felt that the moment where Malou, are we calling her Malou? I'm going to give it a solid 87% confidence on that. (laughs) Let's just say Malou. Although that might be a character from the Jungle Book. (laughs) (laughs) So when he brings his girlfriend in, right, I really feel like that this is just sort of something that happens outside of his adventure. Like if there is this sort of like a big chunk and you take it out of the adventure and you set the chunk over there, mm-hmm. we're now over in a different in a different area, a different zone, yeah. different psychology, different emotions. Even the way that he plans and goes about it is completely changed because even adding one more person, it's it's a completely different way to travel, even though you're still on one motorcycle, right? Right. And so he gives us so much in the first book that I come into Dreaming of Jupiter with expectations. And we talked about this on earlier episodes. Like, we're excited to read this book, Dreaming of Jupiter. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, man, I want you to break all your legs to keep this interesting, <laughs> right? Crash again. Yeah. And then you bring your girlfriend on and you're like, ah, this is not the book I want to read, Ted Simon. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and as a reader, you kind of have to like keep yourself in check with your expectations and what you think the book is even before you read it, right? And so it's it's sort of a good lesson to like, ah, this is not your book. You're reading somebody else's book and they included this. They did this for their own reasons and you're sort of along here for the ride, right? I'm not really mad or sort of upset per se, but it was it was a good way to sort of like keep myself in check that I'm not sort of like projecting what I want this to be. And it's really what Ted Simon told us it was. Yeah. It's not like he was like, here's a book I wrote for you, Jonah Condro. Yeah. You know, know? it is really hard not to do that though. You know, to, to step back and go, well, maybe I'm not necessarily the audience that this is written for, you know, maybe there's probably people out there that really love this book. I I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, I was like, Man, we were really just starting to get rolling here with like the mystery and the and the mishaps and everything and and then it's like okay, well now we got to take a step back. Like he's like, "Oh, I got to throw out a bunch of my luggage to bring her stuff and I hope she doesn't pack a bunch of things like a typical female might with like three outfit outfits per day and whatever." And then he's got to change his routes and shorten his days and just because he has this passenger. And obviously, like you said, this is his book. And this was a very important moment for him because he really wanted to have something with this person. But it's the first time that it seemed like he did something for him on the trip and not for the sake of the book. There's so many other times where he's like, oh, well, we've got to go do this because it'll be good for the film. It'll be good for the book. Whereas this time he's like, I'm going to do this for me because I really want this to happen. But it really... It really put the brakes on 
you know, on yeah. the momentum he had going with what had happened in Africa. Like I was really excited about it. And then I hit that point. Thankfully, I was able to relate to it a lot with, you know, my personal experience with relationships and trying to ride passenger and having dated people in the past that were interested in motorcycle adventures, but not in riding their own and wanting to come on trips with you. And you have this battle of like, I want you to be there, but I'm not fucking doing it doubled. It's yes. just not the same. You know, like he says in the book, your days are shorter. You need to think, well, now I've kind of got to stick to the pavement, you know, because you can't ride as well on rugged terrain uh, with a passenger and like even just as a technical rider. And then on top of that, they're going to be miserable. And you really have to consider how long is it? What can I put this person through before they go? Fuck it. I'm not doing it anymore. And it happens. Which she does. Yeah, yeah exactly. She's like, yep, yeah, fuck, fuck this traffic. And she's like, I'm taking the train the rest of the way to, I can't remember, it was someplace in India, I believe. Right? Yeah. Because there's sort of this problem of communication. When he gets to the hotel, it's like, oh, yeah, that woman didn't check in. And he's like, oh, fuck, like, I got to. Yeah. I got to find her again, right? Yeah, see where she's at. And he, he said, like, if he hadn't found her, she had just committed to never seeing him again. Yeah. You know, like, that was going to be it. And another thing is like when you have a passenger with you, it it does again, it's like staying in the hotels. It distances you from the people around you and you don't immerse yourself in the, the culture of the local areas because you have someone else to talk to and your story and your narrative becomes you and this person, not you and the world that you're fucking flowing through. Here. That's right. I've seen both sides of it. I've done motorcycle trips on my own and I've done motorcycle trips with friends and it's fun going with friends obviously when they're on their own motorcycle. <laughs> but even then I've noticed, even if they're on their own bike and you're out riding around, you know, if you run into trouble, it's likely that they have what you need, you yes. know, and they're right there with you. Cause you've kind of planned. I have this, you have that we're good to go. Whereas if you're by yourself, if you run into trouble, it's like, I got to go meet somebody. Yeah. I got to go out and meet these people around me. And I've always done it like through the States or Canada. So it's like English speaking people, that live a similar life to me. But even then I've found some really interesting connections by doing that. That all amplifies when you're in Africa or India or wherever you might be, where it's an entirely different culture. And that's where all the good stories come from. That's right. So it's like, there's a huge chunk of time on this trip where he has quote unquote Malou with him. I really <laughs> hope that's her name. I'm almost positive, but where you lose that aspect of the adventure. And again, you're reminding yourself. Well, it is impressive though that it's two old people on a motorcycle doing this trip, <laughs> you know. But you, it's you kind of keep touching back to that just to to keep your momentum. And that section, aside from that first part where I could really connect with him wanting her to like it, after that, I was like, oh, this feels like every other time I've tried to bring a girlfriend on a motorcycle. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, cool, you're into this, and then it's like, how long? Because pretty soon you're gonna hate it. It's gonna happen. Like, unless they're on their own bike and they're really passionate about it, eventually you're going to start arguing and they're going to want to go home. And that's exactly what happens. And yeah. Like, Take her for a ride when you get back, dude. You know? <laughs> I don't necessarily understand because I'm not a 70-year-old man going around the world on a motorcycle, but I do sort of understand in my own way wanting to share what you understand and how you feel and the emotions that, good or bad, that you sort of... Uh, experience when you're on a motorcycle trip like that wanting to show somebody you love or that you right. care about or someone that you know is going to connect maybe not in the same way but in a similar way that you do with the journey and so i can understand why like oh hey i'm doing this thing just fly in just meet me here right mm -hmm. and 
wanting to sort of like bring somebody else into your sphere, into your bubble, and like, let me show you what I'm experiencing. Because the only way that you're really going to understand it is if you come out here and do it, right? Yeah. Because he gave us a book. He gave us Jupiter's Travels. And then he's in the process of writing another book. And it's like, I can't, I can't show you yet because I don't have that book yet. So like, come down and like, let me show you, right? So I, I kind of get it, but like... <sighs> I think as a motorcyclist or even as a rider who's on a motorcycle trip, I think you're right that, well, not so much that I don't think you necessarily said it, but I think that you should know enough of yourself at that point to know that if this is going to impact you in a good or a bad way. I think for Ted Simon, it was a good thing that Malou came, right? Right. But for other motorcyclists, I think this is sort of kind of like a lesson. Like if you don't quite know how someone's going to react, Maybe you don't invite them along, right? It's sort of like a safe bet when you're on a motorcycle trip. For sure. And I think you touched on a good point there with you want to share this experience with someone you love because in a way, he's shared this experience with thousands of people because he wrote the book, right? Jupiter's Travels. But you can tell, and he does kind of express this sentiment a lot, that when he meets someone that's read his books and they're really enthusiastic about it, it's almost a one-way connection you know, because they're a fan of his. Yes. And through all of the fans he meets, he never really ends up finding a genuine connection with anyone. It always feels like a famous person and a fan. Whereas like you want that intimate personal connection of sharing this motorcycle trip with someone as it happens, you know, not as I did this, wrote a book and you really like my book. And now you want to come along as a fan. It's I'm doing this adventure and I, I want us to share the experiences at the same time because you do not get it from someone reading your book and you see it time and time again when he meets fans along the way or the two times that there's a group of motorcycle riders riding with him and he's like, I know that I should be honored by this, but I just don't feel the connection to these people and this big group of loud motorcycles is kind of annoying. Yeah, and I think he even says like, I'd rather just watch it go by. He almost wants to be an audience to his own experience in For a way, sure. right? Yeah, and I would imagine it's like this was kind of a desperate attempt to share the trip with somebody. Because you hear it uh, with um, Lone Rider, Elspeth, Beer- Elspeth Beard's book. She really does have a different appreciation for doing that trip the two times she has a companion. That's right. You know, and I could only imagine what it's like to be Ted Simon, to be famous for having written this book about this trip around the world. And fame is such a one way street, you know? Everybody knows you for this and everybody appreciates you for this, but the connection between a fan and an author is not the same. And so you're doing it again and again, you're just kind of doing it alone, even with the film crew and stuff. They, he talks a lot about how they never really make a genuine friendship. And a couple of times he makes comments that he just regrets, Yeah, like tries to make a joke and immediately he's like, oh, that was a stupid joke. And now <laughs> I've just offended someone because the difference in cultures, right? Yeah. And so it's, you know, he's old, he's 70 years old and he's, I would imagine he's like, this is the last time I'm going to do this. I want to try to share it with somebody, you know, and not just in the sense of an author and a fan. I want somebody to be here and experience the moments with me. He should have picked someone that rides motorcycles, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you obviously you don't get to decide who comes in and out of your life. Right. And it felt like, felt kind of like a last ditch effort for him to like, I want to find love and share this last portion of my life with somebody. Anybody that's taken an inexperienced rider or someone that's entirely new to riding on a long distance motorcycle trip, they'll tell you 
that's not the way to find it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to have a pretty solid relationship already to do that and not do it on a whim because it just creates stress and it's going to push you apart. Because that's the thing is like anyone can book a plane ticket and fly to wherever you're going, right? But the thing is, is like to actually do or endure or embark on on a trip like that, mm-hmm. it's like you have to be on it, right? You, and I guess that kind of goes for anything, right? But I mean, like, I guess I guess my point is, is like anyone can book a plane ticket, yeah. you know, but it's, you really have to have the right mindset or even sort of like the the sort of base psychology to even be able to enjoy it or learn to enjoy what you're doing. Because I think most of the world doesn't ride motorcycles, right? Most, most motorcyclists don't go around the world. Right. And very few of them take four years to do it the first time and then decide to do it a second time. right? Right. And so you're just like the kind of person that you need to be, to be able to do that is just like, you're just filtering so many other people out. Right. And the other thing too, is like, because we only see Ted Simon as a motorcyclist, we don't see Ted Simon as who he was before he left the first time, the in-between. We don't really get a sense too much afterwards what he's doing. We only we only see Ted Simon as he is, right? And you can very much become a dis- different person in order to do the traveling that you are doing. And I'm not saying like, uh, you know, there's like a, a fader switch and you go from left all the way to the right. Right. Or... Or whatever, right? There's not like your unrecognizable individual to your friends and family, right? But you definitely sort of absorb a different mindset to be able to do that, right? And it's, you can't just like bring people in, right? It's just like, you know, when you got friends that you only really know or you only really see when you're at the bar or there's people that you only really ride a motorcycle with and those aren't really the people that you're going to go fishing with or camping with per se, right? Like there's, there's sometimes there's no overlap in that friendship group. Yeah. It has to be, you both have this passion individually and then you do that passion together. Yeah. They can't be doing it for you. They can't be like, you really want to do this. Some things for sure. Like a shitty rom-com, you know? Yeah. If your girlfriend really likes shitty rom-coms, you can go see one with her and be doing it for her, even though you'd never do it on your own. That scenario works. An international motorcycle trip is not one of those things. There's a, like, rewind a little bit. Like, I think it's in Dreaming of Jupiter. Where I think he's still in Africa. It may be before he broke his leg or shortly after. I don't remember. But there was a guy that rode with him uh, on, like, a dirt bike or something. And I... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the guy he comes across in the desert. They're kind of, like, going the same way. Yeah. And this is another great example of, of how him staying in hotels separates him from yes. a great experience is because he gets the hotel and the other guy's like, I don't have the money for that. I'm going to go kind of rough it. And in a couple days we'll meet up and carry on the trip. And I felt like that would have been a great opportunity for him to be like, now, nah, you know what? I'm going to go do that. Cause that's the experience. Yes. You know, we could go do that and then go carry on the adventure after, but it's just, it was a, as cut and dry example of the separation, the way he was doing the trip this time. Because it seems like it's very, I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, and I believe he was riding like a dirt bike of some kind. And I think that this guy had even known who he was yeah. by chance. Uh, my memory of, because I completely forgot about this moment until now, but it's sort of like this sort of like riding partnership was very organic and it wasn't forced. Like, oh, you're going that way? I'm going that way. Yeah. Oh, okay, let's go, right? And it's even like, well, you know, if, 
if we continue on, we continue on. And then he's like, Ted Simon's like, well, I never saw that guy again. Yeah. And that was that. And I, and that's okay. Right. And that's completely okay. That whatever you shared, you don't need to keep it going. You had it, man. It was yeah. there. Right. It's yeah, in you, the book. You it's can't great. force the moment to last. That's right. Otherwise it's, it just, it dies out even worse. Yeah. You know, it just dwindles off slowly and it feels really strange. You know, like I love those moments when you're on a motorcycle trip, like the amount of times I've been down through the States and you like see another motorcyclist and they're like, Hey, you've got Alberta plates. Or even if they have BC plates, yes. you're like, Hey, we're like in, if we were up in our country, it wouldn't really matter. I'd wave to you. We'd keep going. Yeah. But it's like, we're in another country and we're both from Canada and you're like, Hey, and you wave and you're like, yeah, cool. And then you'll ride. And sometimes it's been like, I've rode six hours with the same person. Never talk to them. We end up stopping at different gas stations because, I mean, my bike has a gigantic gas tank on it. It's also a BMW adventure bike. So I'll go a little farther. I'll stop, fuel up, grab a snack, and then I'll see them go by. And I'm like, ah, oh, cool. I'll hop back on the bike and you catch up. It's such a cool moment. And then they go their way and you just wave. You like, have no idea who that person is. They might be a complete asshole. Yeah. Or maybe they're famous. You yeah. know, maybe that was you and McGregor. I have no idea. Yeah. You know, but uh, you just have that authentic moment that comes and goes and you have to let it go that way. Like, even though when you see them turn off, you're like, oh, I kind of want to go that way until we like stop and have lunch and get their story. But you just keep doing your thing and there'll be another one that comes along the way, but you can't ever make it happen or you're just going to lose the sparkle of what that moment really is. I'm glad that you kind of said that in that way, because when he's trying to re-meet the people that he met in the first book, mm -hmm. You're like, there's no sparkle here, man. You know, even though you're excited and there's sort of the enthusiasm that you get when you, when sort of that memory is sort of churned back up and you're like, oh yeah, I do remember you, right? It's like, can we get some little fresher, Ted Simon? Yeah. You know? I, it, I think it would have been, like, I get what he's trying to do. I think this trip was probably great for him yes. in a lot of ways. But if he was doing this and not writing a book about it, I think that's what he should have done if he was doing this trip. And again, a lot of that is hindsight because who knows? He could have done this trip and all those people could have been alive and it would have been an entirely different situation. You know, maybe it would have been a lot more exciting if he met all these people and heard the stories of what they've done in the time that's passed in the last 30 years. You know, there could have been some really cool stories there that we didn't get from the strangers that he would have met if he hadn't done this trip this way. But it was just unfortunately, those people weren't around anymore and you can't know it until after. You know, you can't go back and change it afterwards. And that's kind of the problem with going into it with the plan of writing a book. It's like, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to write a book about it. And it's going to be based on the people I meet. It's like, well, you better hope they're there. <laughs> you know, it's been 30 years, man. You know, they might just be like, who are you? Oh, yeah, you were that guy that whose motorcycle fucking broke down. And it was really annoying to help you for two days. You know, <laughs> like, like you kind of just like stayed on my couch and it sucked, you know, but I almost wish he would have done another trip around the world or even not even around the world, just through some unique countries, just hit different countries, do a shorter trip and live that spirit of like the spontaneity. But again, it's like you said, he didn't write the book for us. He did a trip that he wanted to do and wrote a book about it. And you have to accept that and take it for the experience it is. You had mentioned early on in this episode that you had read uh, Jupiter's Travels quite some time, quite some time ago, just recently read Dreaming of Jupiter, right? Whereas uh, my sort of experience reading is I started reading uh, Jupiter's Travels like probably almost two months ago and I got about 100 pages in and I actually started from the beginning again because I'm like, I don't fucking remember anything about the first 100 pages, right? Right. So I read through 
Jupiter's Travels, almost 500 pages. Okay, thanks, Ted Simon. Next morning, right? Actually, later that, uh, I finished uh, it in the morning. Later that afternoon, I picked up Dreaming of Jupiter, started reading it, and I was like, oh, like, this is, this is too much, Ted Simon. Yeah. And so I think, had we been fans of his book when it was originally published in, like, the late 70s, had the 27, 30 years had the opportunity to sort of forget about Jupiter's travels and like, oh yeah, Ted Simon, Dreaming of Jupiter. I think that's a wildly different reading experience than what we had done, right? It's kind of like when they started making Star Wars movies again. That's right. And you're like, oh, this was such a crazy part of my childhood, like having yes. experienced that. Whereas like anybody that didn't grow up with the first Star Wars, now you've got to go back and watch the first ones and then the second ones, and it's just not the same connection. That's right, you know? yeah. You would have seen the first trip, and you. Elspeth Beard mentions it, and uh, another, another one of the writers, I can't remember, it might have been Fulton Jr., mentions Ted Simon, you know, as like this inspiration to what they do, to this passion they have, you know? They would have experienced it as this game-changing situation where this guy wrote around the world and wrote a book about it. Like, oh, that's so cool. I'm going to go do this. Whereas like we were kind of like, and I, I mean, I kind of stumbled on the first one. It wasn't planned for the podcast. I had just read the first one. And so I did kind of have an authentic relationship with it, but it still wasn't like, man, did you hear what this guy just did? You should read his book. Yes. You know, you didn't see the historic moment when it happened. The The other thing too is so like even the second book, he, he goes on that road trip in like the early 2000s. Well, I was like a young teenager then, right? And so you already sort of know some of the things that might've been difficult. You're like, yeah, man, like, you kind of have cell reception wherever you go now, right? Like running a website isn't sort of really the big deal that you make it out to be. Yeah. Right. And so there's things that had you been reading this book in 2000 and I think it came out in like 2003, 2004. Mm. Uh, I might be a little off on that, but you'd be like, oh yeah, like how it must've been difficult getting internet. Right. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, okay. You know what I mean? And so because because we read them in such so close together and generationally we're sort of separated from 10 Simon, right? Like he's definitely not in our peer group by any, any means. Right. It's like, we're, we're not his audience. We're not his audience for the first book. And we're certainly not the audience for the second book. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so I think we really have just based on our age, our experiences with motorcycles, right. Even our reading history in this podcast, we're going to have a different take if let's say maybe you're a 74 year old man and you read dreaming to jupiter you might connect with that book in ways that you and i never will for right? sure yeah i think another thing that really would have helped this book is if he had added some pictures to it oh yeah you know like i loved that in one man caravan yeah like seeing the people that he's talking about because it's easy to imagine them in your own way based on the world that you know but then seeing them, like seeing the houses and the rugged way these people live and getting, you know, the pictures of him crashing and like <laughs> this, these desert areas where there's just like dead camels and crashed planes. And like the picture of it really helps you dive in. Fulton Jr. did it carrying that camera. Like it was also impressive that he did that, but it was so much harder for him to add pictures to it. In Dreaming of Jupiter, there's a film crew. <laughs> so it, they must have had access you know, to be able to add pictures to the book. And that only makes me wonder where 
you know, you're sitting in an office and you have the, and of course this is just me being speculative and hypothetical, right? Like you've got the book publisher on one end of the table. You've got the film producer on the other. You got Ted Simon in the middle. Maybe you got some other people. It's like, Oh, what should we include with the book that will impact the way that the movie's marketed? What should we include in the movie that will impact the book? Right. And so I think, and you mentioned it earlier on, like, I wish I would have, like, looked up to see what came of the film, right? Yeah. Because I think now that we've sort of had, like, a pretty thorough discussion about Ted Simon's, to his, Ted Simon's books, I think the film might influence our reading of this book in a way that, that's probably more positive. Because there's probably stuff that is intentionally left out of this book, we might not be aware of it, that is shown in the movie, right? And so if we watch the movie we might even be like, oh, that thing in the book that he's talking about, that might change the way, that, like, there's more content to consume here, right, that we just didn't consume because we're we're reading books and not watching movies. Yeah, and who knows how the politics of production played out, right? Like, there might be some complications there where they don't want him to put everything in the book because then why watch the movie? That's right. generally the book's always better than the movie. Yes. And it's like, and who knows, maybe it's a different angle because... He even writes kind of his opinion of some of the people that he's involved with in sometimes a negative way. And it's like, you know, you did a big portion of your trip with these people and they're probably going to read the book. (laughs) So it's like, you know, so they might even just take a different viewpoint on the trips, you know? So it might, like you said, shed some light on situations that you didn't have all the information on, or it might just allow you to look at it in a different way. Maybe taking out Ted Simon's narrative might actually be helpful because there is a lot of times where he's like glumly reflecting on his age and how that affects the trip. Yeah. Or like you said, he's staying in a hotel and he's kind of bummed about it. He's still doing it, but he's like, ah, you know, this is kind of cheating. I I wish I wasn't drinking this glass of wine and eating the steak. Yeah. It's like, man, you like, just don't then go camping, man. Yeah. (laughs) You have the camping gear. So uh, that just remind me, he talks about denying the choice. And I can't remember which book it happened in, because if there's the choice to camp, or eat in a, stay in a hotel and eat a steak, if you just remove the ability to make that choice, you're forced to camp, right? Right. And so he he's already, so he's I, th- I believe it's in Jupiter's Travels, and he's aware, like, if I just deny myself the choice, then I have to do the trip in this way. And knowing what I know about when I do things this way in camp and sort of like, he's not really slumming it, right? He, that's not what he's doing. Right. He's But if he's willing to experience the trip sort of like, more from the road than he is from the balcony of a hotel. He knows that it takes him in a, in a different way. Just do it, man. Yeah. You know, oh, you're you're having another meal in a hotel? Why, why don't you go camping, you know? Yeah, and if you're going to do it that way, then don't, you know, rain on your own parade about it. Yeah. Like that, that kind of frustrated me a couple times where he's like, oh, I'm doing this and I should be out doing that. And it's like... Where's the spirit of the adventure you had the first time, man? Like like you said, the first time you just didn't let yourself do it. And you miss out on so much of the adventure doing the hotel route. You know, again, he's fucking 70. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's good that we keep reminding ourselves about that, right? And on the flip side, if you're an older rider and you want to stay in hotels and sleep on a bed every night, there's nothing wrong with doing a motorcycle trip like that. Yeah. Just accept it like, oh, yeah, this is just what I'm doing. Yeah. And you don't need to get all Ted Simon-y bummed out about yourself <laughs> that you're not camping, right, or meeting the locals. It's completely okay if you just want to, yeah, I already booked my next hotel, 
right? And oh, you know, I'm I'm already excited for the meal that I'm going to have. That's okay to have a trip like that. But you know, like there's no you know, there's a lot of purist motorcycles like, "Oh, you got to you can't have a full face or you can't, you know, have heated stuff or, you know, like it's okay to yeah. be comfortable while you ride your motorcycle, right? For sure. Yeah, you've kind of just got to own the way you're doing it. Yeah, and so I guess my fear is is I don't want to make it sound like Ted Simon is not doing a motorcycle trip in the way that I think he should. It's just, you're right. If you're talking about it in your book about wanting to camp versus wanting to be in a hotel, you can just go camp, man. And if yeah. it sucks, tell us it sucks. And it's okay that you're in a hotel. Man, you're 70. Yeah. Like you said. Yeah, it would have been cool to see him do it the hard way and talk about the hardships of doing it as at his age. Yeah. But they almost should have named this book Dreaming of Being 40. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like... There's a lot of like, he's like, I'm going to go do this trip that I did before, but he just, it's not really the same trip. No. You followed the same path, but it's kind of like he watched a movie about doing the trip that he did before. You're not diving in the same way. And it's like, if you go to somewhere and the people that you met on the first trip aren't there, then meet new people. There was a lot of times though where he's like, oh, I got there and there wasn't actually anything there for me. It's like, well, there is, man. You just got to do it the same way you did it the first time. Yeah. And that's, again... In Africa, after he breaks his leg, man, he meets so many interesting people. He met that couple that owns that crazy resort yes. that they built themselves. Like that whole that whole storyline was phenomenal. And it's just new people and new adventures and really just diving in and getting to know people because he has to. And that was, in my opinion, the best part of the book. And there's so many times he missed those opportunities because he was staying in hotels or he had the film crew. I think the film crew really hindered his ability to experience things because he's like, oh, I'm going to get here. And we're going to film meeting these people and get some footage here. And but the people are dead and the monuments I went to aren't there. And so it's like, oh, well, we better get on to the next place because there'll be something to film there. Yeah. There'll be good footage there. And it's like, well, you can find good footage here, but it's it's not going to be these are the people from the last trip. It's going to be these are the people I met this time. It's hard, like knowing he has the support, it is hard to kind of believe when somebody breaks down and they're like, Oh, I had to go do this. It's kind of like watching survival shows. Yes. Like, you know, when you watch survivor and they're like, Oh, like this is so difficult for us to sleep in these shacks and whatever. And it's like, you're always like, yeah, but are you, Yeah. you know, are you guys getting meals on the side when the cameras aren't on? It's, it's just hard to believe the authenticity of it. If he would have tried to do it the rugged way, but that the book would have been the perfect opportunity to explain the way it was happening. It's too bad because it, it almost seems like there's product placement in the second book. And he even talks about like mentioning or doing justice to somebody. It sort of becomes like this sort of like long-term advertisement for this place that he stayed yeah, or the mechanic shop, right? Like, oh, he did me a solid. I'm doing him a solid. So you're like, I get it, man, right? Like replacing your, your what is it, like Avon tires or something like that? What tires did he use? Yeah, I think you're correct. There. Yeah, and like it's sort of like he's sort of using these tires over and over again because he has some sort of a deal to get his tires for free. And I get it. Like you're, you're sort of like making sure that the, the can of Coke is like perfectly captured in the shot. Right. When you're doing the Coke commercial, you know, like, and so like a little bit is sort of like a little, you know, inauthentic. Like you're, you're like, man, uh, some, some paragraphs are a bit of a commercial for like a restaurant or, or what have you. Right. Yeah. He sort of leverages his notoriety. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, I agree. I feel the same way. And it's funny because again, like you said, we were really excited for this one. 
Yeah. It's yeah. it's so interesting because like I loved the first book. And like I know we've said a lot of negative things on this episode about Dreaming of Jupiter. I still recommend reading it. I definitely recommend reading both of them probably within a month. Like maybe have some time in between so you don't do what you did. Yes. You know, where it's like it feels like you listen to an entire like discography of a band that you like, but yeah. it's just too much. It's like when you watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy in like one weekend, right? You're like, oh, that was way too much. There's <laughs> Lord of the Rings fans just screaming at you right now. <laughs> There's never too much. Yeah. Um so like what do you want to give these for a fuel rating? Like what octane rating do you want to give Ted Simon's two books here? I would say Jupiter's Travels is a 91. It is a great book. I love that book. And I don't I don't want to let my opinion of Dreaming of Jupiter, you know, diminish that at all. And in a way, it almost kind of boosted my opinion of it because I've intentionally stopped like I haven't watched the new, I think it's called Long Way Up. You know, Ewan and Charlie did another one on like Harley electric bikes because they're trying to make a statement and whatever. I've kind of separated myself from that world of like privileged global travel. Right. Where you have a support team and you're making a film and whatever. So I, in a way, I've kind of forgotten what that is like. And I've only really immersed myself in these like just struggles of people trying to get around the world. So Dreaming of Jupiter in a way kind of enhanced my appreciation for Jupiter's travels because I'm like, oh yeah, like he could have done it this way the first time, but you really, really appreciate and have a lot of respect for how hard it was for him the first time. And the fact that, like you said, you just don't allow yourself to do the hotel thing. Yeah. So I think is what you're saying is like reading Dreaming of Jupiter made Jupiter's travels better. For sure. Yes. 100%. Okay. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I agree with you there. Yeah. Because I reminded myself, you know, there's a lot of people that do the hotel route. Yes. And like now you're like, oh, yeah, it really was a struggle for him to do the first one. Dreaming of Jupiter. It's tough, man. Like. I would say an 89. Like, I don't want to give it an 87. It would be, be the first book we gave an 87 on this season. If it hadn't been for the leg break section where he goes out and really has that raw, authentic experience, it would have been an 87. Yeah. But that section alone was so cool, man. Like the stories he hears at the hospital and the way that people treat him there and the people that he meets trying to get his bike back and kind of on this wild adventure. That was really cool. You know, so that kind of saved the book for me. That's going to get it an 89. But if it wasn't for that, it would have been an 87. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I agree with the Octane ratings. We're giving Jupiter's Travels a 91, and we're giving Ju uh, Dreaming of Jupiter an 89. Mm. I will say this, like, he's still a writer, and they're still written very well. It's not like yeah, it's not like you're getting bad writing. And we talked about it, and I mentioned earlier about, like, Elspeth Beard wasn't a very strong writer. But the book and just in sort of her way of narrating the story and the ending that we didn't spoil, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, this was a fucking fantastic read. Yeah, mediocre writer with a phenomenal story. That's right. Whereas Ted Simons, a really good writer with a mediocre story in the second book, right? So you're still going to get fantastic writing in both of these books. And I think the writing, have it's it's definitely matured. And I would say it's probably a little bit more, It's it's almost like drinking wine versus drinking port. Like the second book, you're drinking port, but you might not necessarily appreciate all the qualities of it. I think that might be sort of like a semi-fair sort of analogy, right? Right. Still very good reads very good writing but you know maybe if 
if you're on a budget, maybe only buy Jupiter's Travels. For sure. Yeah. It's like Jupiter's Travels you can read without feeling like you need to read Dreaming of Jupiter. Yes. You know, it's not a sequel by any means. It's not like you're missing out on the ending yeah, or something. You don't you don't have to read you don't have to read them both. Yeah. I would still recommend doing it. Um especially since again, we're both motorcycle purists yes. for the most part, you know? So that's the portion of it that we really want to see. Anybody else might get an entirely different opinion of this. They might read the first one and be like, it's not as good. I doubt it, but it's entirely possible. You know, everyone has a different angle. And that's one of the things I'm most excited about with this. I had somebody ask me recently, they're like, oh, you must be really excited to release the podcast and get some feedback. And I'm like, yes, but not so much feedback on the podcast itself, but feedback on the books. You know, I'm really excited for people to write into us and be like, hey, I read this book. I have these personal experiences and this is how I looked at it. And this is kind of why... I don't necessarily agree with your octane rating. I would have given it this and have people like kind of share their different view on it. And maybe, maybe someone with a different experience in life or, you know, maybe they are a writer themselves and they can really shed some light on why Dreaming of Jupiter is actually a better book than we took it to be because they weren't looking at it as a motorcycle rider. They were looking at it as a different type of person. That's what I'm most excited for. I kind of forgot that as we're recording the season, right? People aren't, People aren't caught up, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because and maybe they are, right, at this point. But like we're 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 a little ahead of the pack, I guess, in what we've read. And I think you're right. Like, and maybe somebody has already read this book, and they're like, "Oh, let's see what these two, you know, enlightened dirtbags think about," right? And so I think there's sort of like uh, uh, there's still more to know about these books, I guess, mm-hmm. right? And there's there's more to know from other people that have read them and their experiences with the book or, or what have you. Right. So it's sort of like a good reminder for me when you bring that up. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I'm, I'm not done with these books. Like yeah. when, when, when we stop the recording and release the podcast and the episode, like I am not done with that book yet. Uh, it might sit on the shelf for some time. I might not even think about it for some time, but like definitely I'm not, these books just aren't, aren't going to disappear out of my life, right? Or out of our lives, so. Yeah, and I like I do still plan on trying to find the movie and see if anything came of that and yeah. maybe it'll change my opinion of it. Um and I was actually just thinking the other day about how it would be interesting to do like maybe do a Q&A episode, like a shorter one at the end of each season like a, a while after and have cuz I don't know what kind of feedback we're going to get. People might just write in and be like, oh, that's great. Or you guys are fucking (laughs) awful, you know. But if we do end up getting a lot of people that are sharing their opinions of things and maybe they want to give different examples or ask us how we felt about certain things that we didn't touch on in the book or whatever. Oh, yeah. Or call us out on our bullshit. Yeah, for sure. You know, it it might be nice to have like a, a brief episode to respond to listener feedback. Yeah. And I think if there's enough of that content that that bubbles up absolutely we should pursue that idea i think that's a fantastic idea so please yeah if you read these books if you don't read these books tell us why you read them right tell us uh what you thought of them if you started reading a book and you didn't finish it we want to hear about that too because there's still some value in knowing that somebody started a book and didn't finish reading it right yeah and they have sometimes very valid reasons for for not doing that right so absolutely uh and that just uh that's not just about Ted Simon, like any of the books that we've read up to this point in the season, like just let us know, or even just let us know what your apprehensions are. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause not necessarily everyone's going to dive into, uh, these books because they might be like, well, you know, like 
they might not necessarily want to budget their time for it or they're afraid or you know somebody read it and said it was bad and they're like well and then you guys are reading it saying it's good and now they don't know which sort of opinion to trust right so yeah absolutely tell us what you think yeah um and now we're really going to change gears with the next book Oh, why yes. You, why don't you give yes. us a little bit of a preface to what's going to happen here? So the next book uh, that we're reading for the next episode in the season of The Enlightened Dirtbags is Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga by Hunter S. Thompson. And we are completely walking away from the traveling around the world narrative, motorcycle narrative. And we're even sort of entering like this weird sphere of gonzo journalism that was like created by Hunter S. Thompson about a very infamous uh, motorcycle club, right? And a very sort of wild time in California, right? And so this will be the second time that I'm reading this book. Uh, I read it probably over 10 years ago, right? But it's been on my bookshelf for some time. So this is, the next episode is going to be wildly different for good and for different reasons, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I know I definitely have an appreciation for Hunter S. Thompson. You even more so. I know you've been a big fan of his for a long time. And it's going to be interesting because this is an entirely different character from the authors that we've read previously. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's a, he's a wild guy. You know, and again, like you said, we've kind of beaten the horse to death here with the traveling around the world. And it's really going to change now. And I'm really excited for that. Like I liked covering the circumnavigation of the globe. And I think we got a good variety here with the books that we've, we've done, but I think it's time to move on to something else motorcycle related. And I think this is the path I'm really excited for. Yeah. I we're, we're getting off of like the, the adventure bikes, right? Like we're putting the kickstand down on the BMW, so to speak. And now we're going to get onto a chopper and even just between what I know about those two different motorcycle bikes, like the reading experience as as it is with the riding experience is going to be completely different now that we're taking up uh, Thompson's book. So For sure. And I've been excited about this for a while because um, if you'll remember from the short history of the motorcycle, we actually discussed how uh, we wished, we both wished that um, Richard Hammond would have touched on the American motorcycle culture a little bit more and how we could have actually just read an entire book about easy rider. Cause you know, we both kind of came into the motorcycle world through that cruiser genre, you know, and it's been almost a long time coming because it's, we wanted it from the short history of the motorcycle and then we drifted off into the global travel and now we've kind of come full circle and we're going to dive back into that world, kind of the infamous world of, uh, American, motorcycle gangs this book has just been like vibrating on my shelf right i got all the books lined up in the order that we're reading them right and so like as i got to you know i pulled hell's angels off of off of the shelf right and it's just like you know it feels like i'm about to open up like the ark of the covenant you know it's just (laughs) like the pages are just about to like burst into flames yeah any hunter s thompson book you have in your house almost kind of feels like jumanji (laughs) you're gonna open it up and robin williams and a lion is gonna pop out you never know what's gonna happen monkey's gonna be running through the town now i'm really excited for this and i think uh it's gonna be interesting this one especially to hear what the listeners think because you know so far we've covered a lot of travel and that's one like real niche topic you know and there's a lot of people that are really into that and i don't know if they're the same people that are going to be Hunter S. Thompson type people. 
So right? we're kind of hitting a new, uh, new audience, new yeah, readership, a new right? Audience here that, and it may, it's going to be cool. Maybe there's going to be some people that are like, I'd never heard of Hunter S. Thompson, but this sounds fucking wild. <laughs> and I'm going to dive down this hole. You know, he's one of those writers. It's like Chuck Palahniuk. Yes. You know, if you dive into Chuck Palahniuk books, like I had to have like a midway to like taper off of Chuck Palahniuk when I came back to reality. And Hunter S. Thompson is very much the same way. And then, you know, from there, we kind of get into, um, you know, down the road, we get into uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which again is it's a wild ride yes. you know in a different way of different way than uh hunter s thompson's book but again it's it's really philosophical and it's you, you can't it's really going to make you think so we're getting into some deep waters here and I'm, I'm really excited to to hear what the listeners think of it yes um you want to let uh, our audience know how to get a hold of us i'm enlightened underscore dirtbag on instagram that's the best way to get a hold of me message me add me we'll have some discussions recommend books Tell me if you think I'm fucking awful on the podcast. Whatever you want to do, give me some feedback. And I'm just at Jonah Condro on Instagram. Same thing. Just uh, slide me a message. Uh, let me know what you think. And uh, send me a picture of your motorcycle, that sort of thing. And the other thing that I'm going to add in all of our episodes, somewhere's in the description, they'll just be like a generic Enlightened Dirtbags email. I can't remember what that email is right now. We've already set it up. But in, in the description somewhere's there's an email address so if you don't want to like reach out to us on like social media you can just drop us an email too perfect all this talking about adventures got me eager to get back on the bike go freeze my ass off out there again hopefully it's a little bit warmer than the ride in 